This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No my Heidi my. Welcome to Cult Chat, the podcast where we talk about control, coercion, and all things cultish. I'm Dr. Caroline Ansley. I'm a medical doctor. As a child, I lived at the notorious Centrepoint community, and now I run a website that advocates for former Centrepoint children. I'm Liz Gregory, and I lead the Gloryvale Leavers Support Trust. I've spent the last decade helping people exit Gloryvale and journeying with them and building new lives. I'm Lindy Jacob. I'm a former member of the Exclusive Brethren, and I'm part of the Olive Leaf Network, an initiative that supports people leaving high-demand religious groups. Come with us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to leavers and experts of coercive and controlling groups, and call for Kiwis to cult-proof their lives. Join us as we traverse the cultiverse. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions which may be difficult for some people to hear. Please take care of yourselves and your whanau when listening. Hello again, great to have you along for Cult Chat. Today's episode, we're going to be having a chat with Dr. Caroline Ainsley, or Kaz, as we like to know her, and find out a bit more about who she is and what's motivated her to become a part of Cult Chat. And we'd love to find out more about her over the upcoming episodes as well. But right now, we're going to narrow in with a little bit of an overview. So, Kaz, you're in the hot seat. It's the Inquisition. Who is Kaz? Right. Kaz is a doctor who works here in uh, Otatahi Christchurch. I've been a doctor for 22, 22 years working as a clinician. Most of those years I've been a, a GP, um, though I did start the usual route, did a bit of emergency medicine at the beginning of my uh, professional career. Um, I'm married, uh, have been many years, nearly 20 years. Um, I have two teenage boys, um, are very involved in my uh, local community. I love um, the outdoors. Um, I've got two cats. I think I mentioned that the first episode. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm very, very much a learner. I love learning and I love reading and I love thinking. I really lead with my brain. Oh, Cass, you sound like an academic, but do you have any practical skills? <laughs> well, something that most people won't know about me is that I played ice hockey for many years. Ooh. Yeah, and in fact, about three years ago, I was in the women's, uh, Canterbury women's ice hockey team representing Canterbury in the uh, National Women's Ice Hockey League and even, would you believe it, got some ice time in the final. Ooh. Well done, you. That's amazing. So don't have a fight with me on the ice is all I can say. Oh. You won't win. No way, no way. I'll be like Bambi's first walk on ice. I'd, yeah, I'd just be over in down, eh? <laughs> yeah. So, Kaz, can you tell us about your connection to Centrepoint? Right, well, first of all, I probably just need to remind listeners what Centrepoint was. Mm. So um, Centrepoint was a group that operated between the years of 1978 to 2000 on the north shore of Auckland um, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. um, It was led by um, Bert Potter, a self-appointed spiritual leader and guru um, who kind of had really um, edgy ideas about therapy and um, open sexuality and uh, really advocated a boundaryless mm-hmm. existence which um, was adhered to by his followers he didn't have any qualifications for the position he put himself in right. except he was a very charismatic man who drew people in mm. and um, which is always the case with any kind mm. of cult group is there's usually uh, an egotistical narcissistic mm. Um, 
charismatic individual at its core. So anyway, Centrepoint set itself up down the road from where I grew up, and um, so there's the connection. Uh, it was about two k's, I think, down the road from where I lived. Uh, we moved into the area uh, just before I was born, so uh, my family moved in just before I was born, and then by the time I was uh, two or three, Centrepoint had set itself up, and it started to grow, and lots of families, lots of children. The children went to the local school. Yeah, so these kids were my friends. Then, in 1983, so the cold had been going for five-ish years, and uh, in those years, it was very, very edgy. Um, at that stage, in the early 80s, there was no hiding the sexual activity with children. Bert Potter advocated uh, unashamed uh, mm. sexual activity with children as, mm. as a norm, as a healthy thing to do, that children should be able to participate fully in sexual activity from as early as they started to have any kind of um, inquiry, you know, sort mm -hmm. of early exploration of their bodies should be encouraged and participated in with anyone who they consent, I'm using that word with big inverted commas, mm. consented to. So, yeah, so... There was open nudity and open toilets and open showers and there was no boundaries between um, beds and everyone slept communally and lots of nakedness. And So like I said earlier, Bert advocated for all boundaries to be removed. So all of the normal boundaries that we would consider to be pretty sacrosanct in sort of normal society, he stripped them all down. And... That left the environment for children sexually extremely fluid. So, back to me. In 1983, there was a pretty devastating um, collapse of our family unit, and um, I ended up being fostered to Centre Point mm -hmm. with a family who lived there. The parents were the mother and stepfather of my best friend. And my best friend at this stage lived at Centre Point. And so on some levels it makes sense that I would, in the chaos of our family destruction, move in mm. with the parents of my best friend. Was that an official fostering that went on through sort of government agency? No. At Centre Point it was not uncommon for children to go and live there with um, with adults who took on, nominally took on the responsibility of caring for them. Wow. One of the boundaries that was advocated to be, well, removed at centre point was the natural boundary between parent and child. Mm. So family units were very much broken, separated. Young children would sleep with in the same area as their parents, but teenagers mm. or close to teenage children would sleep in a quite different part of the community. Uh, meal times, you don't necessarily have them with your parents. You don't necessarily see your parents at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day. They don't necessarily help you with your dressing. All those sort of like day-to-day, -day, mm. quite kind of like routine parenting moments that I would have with my children all the time, they didn't really happen and they were broken down. And it was encouraged that, that you would have a centre-point mum and a centre-point dad. And they were mm. an, an adult who would look out for your interests because your parents were usually in work groups with Bert or some of the other therapists or busy on the property doing jobs to manage the property or doing jobs that Bert had given them. Um, they called them Bertsies. So there was a, an enormous amount of distraction mm. from the parents, from the adults, um, which obviously, if you think about it, leaves children wide open yes. to abuse because no one's really... Watching out for yep. them, lack of supervision. It's a yeah, supervisory yeah. Neglect. So there's a great deal of neglect, mm. great deal of just no one watching particular kids. I've also heard um, you or other ex pointers uh, talk about that Centrepoint, unlike a group like, say, Gloria Vale, where there's a, a very um, stable group of people who 
you know, who, who stay there for year upon year upon year. Um, whereas I've heard people talk about Centrepoint and say that there was there were some people who stayed for a long time, but there also there was a huge number of transient adults coming and going, people coming for just a weekend or just a week. And so that also into this environment of a huge lack of boundaries that you're talking about, there are also um, many adults coming and going. I'm just thinking about that with regard to um, children and young people and knowing how important it is for them to have a stable presence of of care and safeguarding in their lives. But, yeah, is that another kind of dynamic a- Absolutely, that yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Centrepoint grew up in a time in New Zealand where there were, was very little social, um, social, psychological support for um, people going through really difficult times Mm -hmm. like new solo parents, Mm -hmm. uh, parents with mental illness, Mm -hmm. people with complex life issues or complex health issues. You know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot there. Social services and mental health services were really inadequate. Mm -hmm. And the understanding around these issues was much lower. So we have to remember that. Centre point uh, and I don't really understand the etiology of it, but Centrepoint kind of ended up being quite a key player in the mental health support space in Auckland at the time. Like doctors would be referring their patients to Centrepoint. Um, So, you know, you see your doctor, um, you know, my life is falling apart, you know, I've just ended my marriage to my partner and I don't know what to do. And and your GP might say, have you thought about Centrepoint? Or you might be struggling with your sexuality and you you, you don't know how to um, progress the problem with your partner and you're really stuck and your marriage is on the line and your GP might say, well, Bert Potter Potter runs a great course for people about expressing, you know, about sexuality. So, you know. Mm. Was consent not talked about the way it is now as well? Like I'm just thinking about, and I'm thinking about things like power dynamics, that there's um, an, an inherent power dynamic between a child and an adult giving consent to have their boundaries removed. I think consent is a modern concept. It it was framed very much in that children, if they didn't want to engage in sexual activity, they would say no. Right. Wouldn't they? So the understanding that children have highly complex reasons for doing anything they do. And vulnerable adults as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. everyone has complex reasons. And if you are a five-year-old wandering around the community and you haven't seen your mum for days and a man comes up to you and gives you attention Mm. and then you note that your mother, um, when you behave in a certain way in groups at community and your mother is given a great deal of attention for your freedom sexually in the group yes. and your mother who's been struggling emotionally and socially is suddenly happy and you want to make them happy and keep them happy yeah, yeah. so that like that kind of really like is that really consent if a child mm. looks at the situation and sees the pe- person that he or she loves is mm. gaining benefit socially from their highly sexualized activity is that mm. consent truly? Mm. So, but it, but on the face of it, the, the the child was consenting. So, as long as the child doesn't say no, then it's a highly problematic, highly problematic. And I think yes. there'll, there'll be a whole. Surely we'll we'll have to do a whole episode on that because mm. you've got consent, and then you've got the, those concepts of grooming, mm. and these are all yes. part of uh, these manipulations that go on inside. Mm controlling environments and in abusive relationships. Yeah, wow, we're probably we're probably getting sidetracked. Getting, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, that yeah. was my fault. I, I, there's, a, yeah, there's a little... So, so many... We, we di- we're yeah. diverted from my story. So, like, yeah. I've got a question about your story. You mentioned, you know, doctors sending people, suggesting they go there. You're now a doctor, and I'm wondering how that sits with you, and I wonder how some of those doctors back then, like just your general medical practitioners in New Zealand... After everything comes out about Centrepoint and how horrific it was, it really lands with them. Whew, I wonder how they're feeling about their role and involvement. This is that, awkward. That's, that's a very good question, I have to say, and, a, and it's one I can't give a good answer to. Mm. For me, it's quite unresolved. Um, it's unresolved also, like, not just the doctors, the educators yeah. and the police. Um, and I think mm. I think that's a question for later episodes. Mm. But, yes, mm. there's a whole lot of um, accountability um, mm. uh, in the area of people who had a responsibility to protect mm. children. So, back to my story. 
Um, Centrepoint wasn't the only foster setting I was placed into in the year that I was seven. In 1982, just before I went to Centrepoint, I lived for several months with another family, a couple who were friends of my mother. While I was with them, I felt really safe. I felt nurtured. I felt loved. In fact, I felt really special. The mum bought me all these pretty dresses to wear and she'd often play with me. She made me feel really, really special. And when I left their home, I was quite devastated. I went back from there to live with my family, which was on the verge of collapse, and in fact it did collapse and it was quite bad. Um, pretty quickly after that, I bounced around with my mother to refuge centres and then eventually my father placed me into a kids' residential facility in Takapuna and was a home for kids who didn't have family, a bit like an orphanage. Um, it was really cold, um, awful, impersonal staff by mean and quite uncaring people heaving with angry, delinquent teenagers. I felt quite frightened while I was there. It was also complicated for me by the fact that I was there with my two younger siblings who were preschoolers at the time and I was working very hard to try to protect them from what was happening there. So, yeah, there was a lot going on for me before I went to Centrepoint. There were lots of traumas, a lot of losses, a lot of chaos. I think it's important to say, though, that... I was a really resilient little girl. I was tough, I was self-sufficient, and I was really good at bouncing back. When I was loved, I flourished. As my time in that first family showed me, that family convinced me that during a really awful period in my life, that I was precious and worth loving. There was nothing about that home which hurt me, and in fact, for years afterwards, when I thought about that family, my memories of them were really precious to me. Uh, they were a real source of comfort. That family showed me that even though I was going through a lot of loss and trauma, I could bounce back if I was in a safe and loving environment. So, in 1983, I ended up at Centrepoint. I was seven. I was there with a family who ostensibly were caring for me but were not in any way, shape or form um, because that was just the ethos of the community. Kids mm. kind of ran free. And I was there for... Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Months is the, the, the time frame we're talking about here. Yeah. So then um, while I was there, I was neglected, sexually abused. Uh, I had some positive experiences. It was a wonderful place to live with a bunch of children. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the children experience was, you know, the, 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 the friends aspect of it was very positive. But largely for me, it was an experience of abandonment, neglect, mm. abuse. So I don't really have anything particularly positive to say about it outside of that. Yeah. So um, eventually I was uh, taken away and returned to my family home. Mm. Also, um, a little bit about my family at the time because I think the context really matters. When I returned to home after living at Centrepoint, it was to a household that was very much reduced in size and it was in complete tatters. I wasn't the only child to be farmed out during this time. Four of my six siblings were also farmed out to other household and my mother was no longer on the scene. I don't think I saw her for well over a year or, or perhaps even two from that point. My father was left with three children to look after by himself. I was one of them. My four other siblings never came back to live with us. Uh, my father was one, not my mother, who had the connection to Centrepoint. Mum was out of the picture and my father continued to be involved with Centrepoint. Uh, fairly soon after I left Centrepoint, my father met my stepmother at one of the intensive work groups that Centrepoint ran. She wasn't living, living there either, neither was my father. She was another person like my father who lived on the outside but was quite heavily involved with the community. And then she moved in with us. Because they were both so interesting to point, there were lots of little ways that our home felt really invaded by Centre Point, or at least to me it, it, it felt that way. So it felt to me like even though I'd left Centre Point, Centre Point followed me into our home. Five years after I left Centre Point, my father and stepmother were married at Centrepoint in the main living room in the community and the celebrant was Bert Potter, uh, the community's leader. Centrepoint was invited to my father's wedding, but I wasn't. Yeah. 
Had you ever shared with them the abuse that you suffered when you were there? No, I didn't because I was in a household that was pro-centrepoint mm-hmm. yeah. and I had very unpalatable, I had an unpalatable story to tell. Mm-hmm. And yeah. children know when yeah. they will be heard mm-hmm. and when they won't. I first told a person when I was 14 mm. and I didn't really get a particularly good response. Mm. And then I I really needed to talk because even though in my family context there was total silence, mm. in the wider context there was a lot of noise about Centrepoint. Okay. So I was there in 1983 and then in 1989-ish, there was um, the police raided the community. I was at 1989, 1991. It was all around that time. The police raided the community a number of times around drug um, trafficking, uh, creating, manufacturing of drugs mm. and, and uh, selling drugs and uh, giving drugs to people in the community um, and children in the community. And there was also um, real concerns around um, the safety of the children, so that led to uh, some police raids as well. And throughout all of this, media, 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 media. Yeah, I've always been fascinated that when I look back and read Centrepoint information, for years prior, the emphasis had been on the sexual stuff. So surely you would have thought that the first lots of charges levelled would have been in that realm of, of sexual abuse or assaults. And yet it was the drugs they finally... It was sort of like it was something easier to find and pin on the community and then later on those charges pretty came. Ob- pretty objective, though. Like, they found drugs on the community. Exactly. The community and, you know, grounds. like, the yeah. problem... The problem with what happened at Centrepoint, and I'm sure you could say it's the same about Gloria Vale, Mm -hmm. is that everyone, the story was unpalatable. So the children's stories were being silenced or, like, for instance, you know, Bert Potter's in the room or the police are interviewing the child, (laughs) you know, like, you know, the child's like, well, if I say this, harm will happen in my situation. So, like... it's hard to progress those kind of charges, basically. Exactly. When people are not willing to be witnesses or you can't actually get to your audience or, you know, they can't get there. Um, yeah, so you're right, drugs. So if they'd found a plot of marijuana up the back of Gloryvale, perhaps, you know, it might have been oh, many not years marijuana, ago. Not marijuana, you know, <laughs> yeah, like LSD, LSD, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, you've got to be willing to, have, to find someone mm. who's willing to actually testify mm-hmm. um, and there were people who were testifying there was a lot of rumours abounding yeah. uh, in the Albany community a lot of people trying to make noise about it yeah. and that's what the documentary yes. that was done in 2021 uh, Heaven and Hell which is on TVNZ on demand if you want to watch it that's what that went into how it actually kind of all came out and um, came to light Yes, so I got to the point where I started to tell someone, and that actually was a youth group leader. Um, if she ever listens to this, she was the first person who ever truly dug into uh, what I experienced and heard me, and mm. she was uh, utterly safe um, adult, the first first ever safe adult to truly care about what that experience was like. So wow. shout out to uh, anyone who's willing to sit in that uncomfortable space mm. of hearing someone tell their difficult story. It, yeah. it can change a person's life. And as a 15-year-old, it changed my life to be heard. Wow. Mm. So That's amazing. So then you've got some intervening years from talking about it and then watching Centrepoint and the fallout, and then leading into legal action, and then you know there's a number of years in that missing there. What what happened in so, that time oh, for you? So I was 15 when I started to talk about mm. it. Like, but then literally I talked about it like with two people, the two people I mentioned, yeah. and then silence. Mm. No, you know I, um, I think I mentioned it to my mum when I was 15. And then um, years go by, 
what happened. I think I just... It wasn't a big deal. That was the narrative I heard. Wow. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Bad stuff happens to everyone. Wow. Don't yeah. make a fuss. That was the narrative I heard. That's a narrative I believed. Yes. And um, so I allowed it to sink into the background. And I also believed that, like I said, I believed in the reality that my family or the I, I believed the story that Centrepoint was an important part of my family's life. So for me, talking about this would threaten my relationship with anyone in my family. So that's that's what I believed for a very, very long time. Do you think it had an impact on you, just the burying it, the putting it in the background, making oh. out that it wasn't important? Is there an impact on that? Well, I didn't... When you put something in the background like that, you don't get to challenge the idea, the assumption that underpins it. And what underpinned it, what underpinned an experience of being abandoned in an extraordinarily unsafe place Mm. that I recognised as unsafe right from my first time I was there, Mm. is that it says it sends you a message that you don't matter, Mm -hmm. that you're expendable Mm. and that you don't belong. And when you don't talk about that with anyone... It just stays there, that belief, and it fundamentally sits at the heart of everything you do. Yeah. And so it did, it did, it had a really profound effect on my view of my position in my family, yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. And issues around trust and other relationships? Mm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, 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 I have to assume so. Yeah. Um, that's a harder question to answer, though. Mm. So at some point in your journey, obviously you've trained as a doctor and were working in that, year, but in that field, but at some point um, things changed for you from this mode of silence and um, you eventually started the Centrepoint Restoration Project. So can you tell us about that change there from yeah, this, well, the, the silent young person? Yeah, there were some key moments, like I remember so vividly sitting on the couch with my flatmates when I was 19. Yes, I'm talking about you, Andrew, and Marie and Craig. <laughs> and uh, it was another another media piece came on right. on TV. And, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I can't hide this. They're in the room. It's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Like my flatmates were in the room. It's happening right in front of me. Burt Potter's on TV. Wow. Oh, my God, they will know who I am. They'll know that I'm part of this. They'll know that something bad happened to me. How can I get out of here? And I couldn't. And I was just like, I started to cry. I started to fall apart. My flatmates were like, what's wrong? They gathered around me and they just sat with me and it it just sort of had to come out. And in that moment, I I, I was trapped by this exposure in this moment. And I was so ashamed that I was one of those kids. But it was fine. It was fine. My my flatmates were lovely. And they're still some of my closest friends. So they were enduring relationships. Wow. Um, just got goosebumps issue. Yeah, Tiny just to bit. be caught. I, was, I really was yeah. sp- a sprung, basically, and that's what it felt like. But it was a safe space, so it was okay. Wow. So moments like that mm. uh, happened, and, and, I, and I would volunteer the experience to some friends over time, and then I'd see a therapist, and I never quite, was never very really able to dig into it. Something about it I, I found elusive. Mm. And I think... What actually it was, was that my experience at Centrepoint, what I learnt when I was there, is that how I felt did not matter. Mm. So my emotional response to the environment I was in, Mm. terror, fear, desperation, didn't change anything. So I learnt to separate out from that. And I said earlier that I lead with my head, Mm. and that's the long-term consequence, is I lead with my head. And so what that that can be quite useful, to lead with your head. Um, The bad side of that is you don't always find your feelings. Mm. And so things would come up in the news, and I'd have this devastating, overwhelming emotional response, and then it would sink away, and I'd be like, it would usually take two or three weeks, Mm. and then I'd be like... 
I really need to think about that centre point stuff. I know it's still there. And I'd, it's almost like I'd be like trying to find it. Like, but it would sunk in below the surface and it was mm. gone. So the intervening, what would happen in the inter- intervening years is nothing. Mm. Nothing would happen. Mm. And then another event would come up, same thing, devastating emotional response, felt overwhelmed, felt broken, felt like a disaster. And then it would go away and mm. I'd push it away again because I had literally nothing to do with centre point in my day-to-day life. No people, no, you know, I, I could just walk away and pretend it wasn't part of my life. Mm. And then I remember really vividly when my son was five and I was getting really angry about something with my husband and I yelled at him and my five-year-old said to me, why do you get so angry with Daddy? And I was like, why do I get so angry with Daddy? (laughs) And um, that made me think that actually things went okay. Yeah. So then we roll on a couple of years and 2015 comes along and that's where my journey collided with my friend Anka's journey. Mm. And um, we'll be interviewing Anka at a later time in our season, Anka Richter. She's a journalist and she was independently of my life uh, doing uh, some journalism into digging into Centre Point, and she'd started writing a book, and it had um, uh, failed to progress because of legal issues. And instead of writing the book, she released a oh, quite twelve-page article mm. in um, North and South in two thousand and fifteen. Mm. So she released this article. I was at work one day in the tea room, in between patients. Open the article up. Oh, wow. And um, here I start to read the story about Centrepoint, and this was different. This was a story about Centrepoint children and what life was like for Centrepoint children 20 years on. And it was the first time I'd ever read an account of another person who'd lived at Centrepoint as a child, never heard anyone's story about it. And... Suffice to say, it was very hard to see my patients that afternoon. Mm. Um, It tipped me over and turned me upside down. However, the bit of my brain that that is in control was saying, here's your chance, Caroline. This is your chance. It's all dug up. It's all come up. Here's your chance to change this Mm. and get rid of this forevermore. So instead of the normal process of just feeling bad for a few weeks and then it going away, mm. I did everything I could to flood myself with stories about Centrepoint. I spent wow. weeks on the internet. I wrote a letter to the North and South, which felt like a really big move. I reached out to Anka, spent hours talking to her, mm. tried to reach out to other Centrepoint kids, just flooded myself with wow. information and basically overloaded my circuits. Um, it's part of deprogramming. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it was never too much. I was pacing myself quite carefully, making sure I was all right, giving myself breaks from it as I went quite deliberately to desensitise myself wow. so that the feelings couldn't sink down beneath the surface again and I could start to find them and hold them and keep holding on to them. Yeah. And a bit like exposing yourself to uh, pictures of spiders and then a spider across the room and then mm. a spider in your hand, you know, like that's what it was like for me. It was um, uh, it was a type of exposure therapy that I did to myself. Mm. And that, that whole process over six weeks or so kind of uh, stirred in me a sense of like injustice really yeah. about all these untold stories and the unjust, injustice for children who had been harmed at Centre Point and how few of them had actually had any kind of accountability, redress, honest holding of their stories and recognising of its seriousness. Yeah, so lots and lots of conversations, lots of increasing exposure to the whole, the shame of it. Yeah. Um, and then 
I started the website initially. The website was just my way to record some of the resources that I found, and then it was a place for me to write stuff. So just to clarify, the name of your website is the Centrepoint Restoration Project. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so it was you know a blog, and then it became more than that, and I think probably for the first two years no one looked at it except for me, <laughs> but that was fine. You're just going to increase your readership like <laughs> tenfold after today's episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I just thought, if someone like me, who doesn't have any connection to Centrepoint anymore, wanted to, to figure out their own stuff like I had, mm. where would they go? And I was like, there's nowhere. I'm going to be that place where mm. that person can go to start their thinking about it, find some information about it, maybe have a friendly person that they could talk to. Mm. You know, like, if they've been silenced, if they've had no no acknowledgement or recognition mm-hmm. of the pain they went through, like me, what can they do? Oh. Let's just make it easier for the next person. It's brilliant. All the research shows that people coming out of high-demand groups, one of their best forms of support is talking to someone else who came out of that group so you can start to untangle some of the mess in the mind. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. 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 Fundamentally for me, um, my history at Centrepoint until this point had just been this really awful black hole that I'd be pulled into at unexpected times. It, it, it would turn my otherwise fairly stable and pretty functional world right upside down, suck a whole lot out of me, traumatise me, and then a little bit later on, spit me out. It was this, like, mm, this secret I hid from people I cared about, something I was desperately ashamed of and, and an awful pain that had a power over me. Every time I, it returned in those really completely unpredictable moments, it totally floored me <clears throat> and destroyed me all over again. By the time Anka's article popped into my consciousness in 2015, it was something really different. I wanted something I wanted something different this time. I, I was so sick of it. I wanted Centre Point to be restored for me. I didn't want that black hole anymore. I wanted to be able to go to that place in my head without it just flooring me. And I wanted something new. I wanted to be able to look back on that and... I wanted to be centre point to mean something more than just disaster for me. I wanted to create a new thing. It was important to me that I would be the author of my story instead of just a character in it, someone who'd been abandoned and ignored and mistreated. I needed another chapter, a different ending, something with some hope in it and some where I had agency. So this idea of the website, the Centrepoint Restoration Project, was about restoring my history and creating something good in its space, inviting other people to do the same thing with their own story at Centrepoint too. It was an invitation to people who had allowed it all to happen, who uh, who could then do their own grappling, make it right with the children, make it right with themselves, and perhaps if they're able to be brave and face their own failings, make it right with their own children. And maybe, maybe even experience some of their own freedom. That's what the Centrepoint Restoration Project was all about. Yeah, I I did very much have a focus on harm caused to children because that was what happened to me. I I didn't, at that point, have a great deal of understanding about the cult dynamics because I was only only seven and seven-year-olds don't really pick up a great deal of complexity in social relating. And anyway, over time it built, and then um, I was still very, I was still terrified of my name being associated with Centrepoint. That was such a mm. strong driver for me. So I, I, I didn't start out bold, to be honest. Um, then my name just started to appear in media stuff, mm. and then um, I, I got to know more people. You know, I reached out to individuals who had been children at Centrepoint. I was just trying to find. I was trying to find some peers. I was trying to find some people who could fill in the gaps, mm-hmm. you know, because I had I had no history history um, keeper. There was no person saying this is what happened. This is why it happened. You know, normally our parents have that role um, when we have life experiences. That wasn't the case for me. I didn't have someone helping me to understand and unpack the objective events and mm. and and help me to understand how they related to my life. Um, so I tried to find people, and so I gathered information and stories along the way, and I found lots of people who also had awful experiences, whose lives were, were, were absolute wrecks, or or had 
who were doing everything they could to distance themselves because they wanted, you know, they'd gone through all that awfulness, mm. you know, like it had taken enough from them. They just wanted to get on with yeah. their lives and never mm. be associated with that awful place again. Yeah. Or I'd met some people who had a good time and they were like, oh, you know, why is the media sort of still bringing up, you know, associate, having these negative associations between their former loved home where they weren't abused. Wow. So it was really, really complex. It was very complex. So this area of multiple narratives about a group is one that fascinates me and the question of who gets to tell the narrative about a group. And, yeah, to me it sounds like a bunch of the adults who chose to go to Centrepoint are perhaps even trying to control the narrative about Centrepoint um, and, and, you know, they're not comfortable to hear the, the very real experiences and narrative of the children at Centrepoint and yet surely both need to be heard and in particular that the experience of, experiences of those who were abused need to be heard to help us to safeguard for the future. I know that in... Thing, people talk about you know going for a, for a long walk it's the slowest person who sets the pace you know it's that type of thing it's fantastic if some people have a great experience in a group but if there are people mm. coming out the other end who have been abused or harmed then we have to take notice of them mm. so yeah you, you've yeah. got several viewpoints on centre point you've got your experience as a child and then your experience as an adult processing that and your experience now as a medical doctor yeah, well, it, it, I, I feel like I have three heads here because yeah. um, they're really quite distinct phases right. in my life. Yeah. Um, and it has been a fairly uh, detailed, uh, intense journey to try to make sense in the last, particularly last eight years, really to kind of unpack those experiences as a child, unpack how it uh, affected my identity, how it affected my sense of bravery, uh, how how it's shaped what I care about, mm. um, how it's affected me professionally. Um, Do you find yourself reflecting on the other medical professionals who were perhaps around you as a child and may have missed noticing there was something? Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. There were doctors who worked on the grounds of the, of the community mm. There was therapists, therapists who worked at the community, therapists who came and went. I, I, I struggle to see how how they can say they didn't see it. I, I really absolutely struggled yeah. to, to believe that. And yeah. um, as you were saying earlier, Lindy, I think there is um, still very much a very strong narrative that it was a good time, it was our community, but... When, when something has at its root, at its core, something so destructive and damaging, how can that... Uh, I mean, it's a whole other episode, isn't it? How mm. can that good time be truly a good time if the good time yeah. is happening at the price, the price of the, the, the survival of, of the weaker members? Yeah, um, yeah that's yeah. a really, really important And, and how, how can... Yeah, how can health professionals stand by and be on the grounds of the property and yeah. say they've seen nothing? I, mm. I think that's frankly preposterous, mm. to be honest. But So you're, we're, we're going into some controversial territory here around, you know, um, who, whose narrative gets to, you know, mm. get the mic and that type of thing. Um, have you received any backlash since you've started to speak up or have you, or any criticism might be a better word, word since you've started to speak up about Centrepoint? And how have you dealt with that? Or how um, do you deal with that? Um, mm. Yes, absolutely. And how will you um, deal with it after this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I think what, what, how I've dealt with it is I've dug into the, the, the really good people in my life. Mm. I've, um, I've talked more and more and more with good, safe, solid people. I, I'm part of a church community, and one of the most pivotal moments in my journey in the last eight years has been the day I stood up in front of my church community and told them a whole story wow. about Centrepoint, and none of them had ever heard it. It was before the documentary, before um, Adam Dudding and Eugene Bingham's um, podcast the commune. It was before everyone knew anything about it, and um, wow. they just. <laughs> someone said to me, "A pin could have dropped." No, oh, I bet. <laughs> like, 
And uh, like the the the, uh, the support I got after that was stunning. You know, a hundred people listening to to me tell my story and go where with you. Like, yeah, it's so, powerful. So that's obviously a safe church community. I'd just like to caveat that because I spend a lot of time thinking about unsafe church communities. But, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. You're, you're saying that you found um, people who, who very, responded very much, very much. And um, well, so, so I'd say community, community, and the true version of the word, a, place, right. a safe place. Yeah. You know, where we can love one another and mm. we can be a safe harbour for one another. Mm. And I found a lot of safe harbours. And when you are surrounded by safe harbours, individuals who want you to stop talking, uh, they lose their power yeah. to hurt you. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and surely in you speaking out, it actually encourages others to speak out. And what you get is that snowballing and that confidence that comes with actually, you know, harm was done and wrong happened and you're not going to shut me up. Mm-hmm. And that's actually incredibly empowering. And I think about some of the glory of our survivors who have made that decision to step forward into that public mm-hmm. arena and the strength that others draw from them and just the internal integrity, like their own sense of self grows, a sense of purpose, and, and they journey out of that place of bondage Absolutely. and shut down. You've just reminded yeah. me of a point that you've made before to me, Liz, about... Um, because I, ha- I don't think I've kind of mentioned in this that in 2021 I was in the documentary uh, Heaven and Hell. Mm. I've mentioned it, but I don't know if I said I was actually in it. I was one of the people interviewed in it, and I, ha- I had my name in it, and I had the fact that I'm a doctor in it, and I didn't hide my face, and I yeah. and I did all the things that sort of like, as, as did um, my, my peers who were also in it, but the difference that is all of that shaming stuff, you know, the talk in the shadows, anonymous name, all that stuff that kind of... Adds to secrecy and silence wasn't yeah. there, and um, mm. you you told me afterwards what the impact of that mm. documentary was. Yeah, and, and we we also wrote an open letter around the same time as a sort of a call um, to former adults of the community to say, "Hey, we deserve we deserve truth in this space, and we deserve acknowledgement in this yeah. space." And um, that all came out at the same time as the documentary. Yeah, and I never forget reading that. It was a full-page article, was it, the, in the Herald? In the Herald, yeah. And um, I just remember weeping, reading it, and taking snapshots of it and, like, sending it out to people from who'd left Gloryvale, putting it in our updates group. Wow, look at what's happening here. It was that brilliant, powerful quote from Desmond Tutu. It's about that concept of reconciliation. But, you know, it's, it's a call for um, openness and honesty and justice and all mm-hmm. those things that, you know, I hold dear. And it was incredibly impactful. And leavers felt empowered after watching Heaven and Hell and then seeing you the next day, was it the breakfast show or mm. Seven Sharp, yes, yeah, speaking and the three ladies sitting there talking about your experiences. It was incredibly empowering. Mm. So that's been part of the journey. Mm. And that was an encouragement. You're helping other people who have left Gloria Vale. Mm. Like that saying, courage calls to courage everywhere. Mm. So let's back into cult chat. I just wonder if it might be a good idea to wrap up. Um, with that, um, a lot of Centrepoint's focus has been on the sexually harmful behaviours and abuse, and even the the documentary was. But it does have that culty. It does have the culty aspects, the coercion, the manipulation, and yet we don't hear a lot about that. So is that something you might be, um, you know, talking about and sharing as we go along our cult journey? Yeah, absolutely. I like. Um, I, th- I think, like everyone's saying, I, I, I missed it. As a seven-year-old, I missed a lot of it. But many of my compatriots have talked about how they had to stand in lines and be judged by the whole community according to how you know how good they were or not, and being pushed down to the bottom of the lines because they weren't up to scratch, and and being forced to do sexually explicit things in groups with other people and compare their bodies to other people, and all this sort of revolting stuff, and then being punished for not being sexually available, and all the sort of it's all coercion control, and mm. the ultimate outcome was to very young women, girls mainly, to be sexually available to paedophiles. I mean, like, that's just mincing words. That was the purpose. Yeah, and Um, looking when we start looking into this cultiverse, I think we're going to see a lot of that, that there's normally a leader and then there are others up under them and there's some perversion and they're actually feeding their own needs and what they think are needs, insecurities and perversions, and other people get pulled into it they might think they're going there for a good reason but actually Mm. someone else is actually driving that narrative 
Yes, it's a um, it's a social issue. It's a public health issue. Mm. Um, it's a feminist issue. You know, this this stuff is it's much much bigger than centre point. And I think for me, it's been really helpful to step a little bit away from the centre point conversation into how this is relevant for New Zealanders and how yeah we can understand the dynamics that got us there better, um, and therefore prevent further centre points, Mm. prevent further victims. So, yeah. Well, a huge thank you to you, Kaz, for being so open-hearted with sharing your story with Mm. us today. There's so much in there that, um, yeah, felt felt quite vulnerable and quite quite sort of um, sacred. So thank you for sharing that with with us and with our listeners. And, um, yeah, we we do look forward to hearing, having you on the show and hearing hearing more of your perspective and experiences unfold in, in the upcoming episodes. Thanks, listeners. We hope there was something in there today that encourages you to cult-proof your life. If you're interested in knowing more about Centrepoint, make sure you head to our show notes where we'll have some links to resources. Cult Chat is available on all usual platforms, including the Plains FM website. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow Cult Chat on Facebook. We're looking forward to the next session where I believe I may be interviewed on my role with the Glorival Lever Support Trust. So... Bring your friends, come one, come all, and let's see if we can multiply our listenership by, what do you think, ladies? An extra five, ten? A cent? Oh, yeah, that'd be nice. Let's aim for that. <laughs> all right, team. That's, uh, that's a wrap for us today, and it's uh, Ka Kite Ano. Ka Kite Ano. See you next time. If anything in today's episode was upsetting for you and you'd like to talk to somebody, free call or text 1737 for support from a trained counsellor. Or visit the resources section on the New Zealand Olive Leaf Network website for a range of resources that might be of interest and use to you. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speakers alone and Cult Chat does not necessarily share or endorse them. (laughs) 